please turn with me once again to 1 Chronicles 16. Let's keep our fingers there. As you are looking for 1 Chronicles once again, let me just note to you uh, that the news that we read, the news that we follow in uh, the world of politics, the world of entertainment, the world of academics, the world of religion, are not just a record of what's happening in these various forums, but what we are actually witnessing is an all-out, true culture war. We really are. Unlike ever before in American history, the world of politics sets the standards, the world of entertainment popularizes those standards, the world of academics indoctrinates those standards, And the world of religion tries to mediate between the temporal and the eternal in regards to those standards. And the truth is that to some degree, as a nation, as America, we have always faced a pushback on whatever has been the way of life. There have always been those who push against the idea as to how do we determine how a nation should live. And of course, I think you well know that the direction of the nation is based on individuals' ideas. And when these individuals amass into a group, well then there is a greater push for that way of thinking. However, today, the battle is far more intense and the spoils of victory are more fundamental than ever before. Uh, We are battling for the very fundamentals that have made us into who uh, we know ourselves to be as a people, as a nation. Um, In the past, we battled as to who decides what is true, what is right, the Catholics or the Protestants. We have long moved away from that. Today, we are more within the camp of who decides truth. Uh, the secularists or the Christians. But as I said, today the fundamentals are being challenged. Uh, Fundamentals like, does morality exist? It's no longer what is moral, but does morality exist? Is there such such a thing as right and wrong? That's where we are at today. Fundamentals like what determines gender identity? How do we decide? Not too long ago, that was an easy answer. Today, it is not. Thus, the seminar this evening. What determines or defines marriage? Fundamentals. What determines life itself? And who gets to determine what are our rights? Uh, For example, um, who has the right to live versus who has a right to her, his own body? These are fundamentals, and they're all being challenged at a very strong and rapid pace, faster than any of us could have imagined. One writer puts it this way. He describes this cultural war as a battle for the fundamental future of civilization. The stakes have never been higher. Who decides how then we should live? I think that's a great question. 
who decides how we should live. Now, for the most part, I believe that both sides want to promote prosperity, liberty, and want to see a people that flourish in society. But keep in mind that only one side will win. Only one side will win. One side will establish the beliefs and practices of a nation. And keep in mind that generally speaking, the church is always about 10 years behind. That's a frightening thought, isn't it? When our nation was heavily, heavily Christianized, and I say heavily Christianized because we were never a Christian nation. Uh, Israel was a Jewish nation because everybody was a Jew. America was never 100% Christian. We were Christianized. In fact, today, 65% of American adults identify themselves as Christians. It's not to say that they practice Christianity. It simply is their faith of choice. Uh, we are no longer Christianized. Um, and that is to say, we don't live by Christian principles. America is rapidly becoming secular with a Christian label. And that is to say that what we claim is our faith and what we believe are two separate entities. It's hard for us to understand that. What we say we believe and what we say is our religion, our faith, are two separate entities, and never the twain shall meet. Uh, before I say anything else, uh, brothers, sisters, our concern as Christians should be more so for the church than for the nation. We spend a lot of time concerned for the nation Oh, how I wish you would be so concerned for the church of Christ. What we believe about God and how we live, by and large, are two distinct factors. Just this week, my wife was away visiting our other son in Florida. And so my one son found a shirt in his drawer that was pressed and new. He had never worn it before. He had forgotten somebody gave that to him. And so he was very happy. A clean, fresh, iron shirt. And he pulls it out of the drawer and he puts it on only to notice that there's a little tear in the sleeve. And so he figures, oh, before I wear it, let me have mom stitch it for me. Now, it was a shirt with a really uh, considerable label in the back and, and, and a very prestigious logo on the front. A very expensive shirt in terms of the logo. And when he goes to pull it off, what he discovers is that the whole sleeve rips off, the whole chest opens up. <laughs> Obviously, that was not the shirt it was intended or labeled as. There was a disconnect between the actual value of the shirt versus the logo on the shirt. That seems to be how we are living the Christian life. That there's a disconnect between what we believe and how we live. 
That's why the Speaker of the House could claim to be a staunch Roman Catholic and at the same time be a staunch promoter, proponent of abortion. And that's why she could be excommunicated, that is, no longer allowed to take communion by the bishop of her district in San Francisco and yet be welcomed to take the Lord's Supper at the Vatican with the Pope. You see, that, that's just the way we are embracing a lifestyle where we say one thing and do another. And increasingly we're okay with that. Why, though, should the Christian faith, why should the Bible be the standard of truth? I was in my office speaking to a man who said about himself, he says, it's simply not right that I would impose my beliefs on someone else. And that's why I advocate for same-sex marriage. I don't have the right to impose my beliefs on somebody else. And with those same, the same breath, he looked to his wife and said, you have no right to be unfaithful to me. I want a divorce. <laughs> he was imposing his beliefs on her. Historically, the United States of America has relied on the Bible as our compass for truth and morality. Keep in mind, my friends, that the United States is not Israel. But the nation will benefit when God's word is the standard for morality. The scriptures were our compass for morality because this nation was founded not only on these principles, but for the purpose of these principles. Our nation was founded in order to promote these biblical principles. When the pilgrims arrived in 1620, they did so, they came here in, the, in order to establish the scriptures as the basis for truth, the basis for morality, the basis for human rights, the basis for liberty, the basis for government. They believed that if we were to keep the word of God as the focal point for life, Life, that we would flourish and they were right we certainly did but as the culture war wages the Christian is left asking this very frequent question every day we have to ask how then shall I live we could speak and speak about what the nation should be doing but really our focus should be here how should I live? How should I, you, us, Christians, live? How will I navigate the increasingly secular world? The truth is that we are immersed in a very persuasive world. We can very easily be persuaded by this world. At times we conclude that we have to well, if we plan to, to come along to, to be able to function in this society, we have to simply embrace the way of society. We often think that, well, it's just impossible to succeed if we stick to the word of God. And so we just get along and come along 
in order to survive. Uh, other times we simply don't see the standards of the world as being contradictory to the Bible or at least not as contradictory as we one time thought it was. Uh, we simply don't see the chasm between the ways of God and the ways of man. Our, our vision has become blurred to it. Well, this morning, I want you to see what God promises to those who wholeheartedly embrace his standard. We can't talk of it in terms of being a nation, but that's really not my interest. My interest is in how we, as God's people, Christians, how do we live in this secularized world? How can you flourish? How can you make decisions that will propel you forward, not only in life, but in the eyes of God? And it all comes from 1 Chronicles chapter 16. 1 Chronicles is a story of what? Who remembers? What's 1 Chronicles about? It's an editorial about David. King David, come on, you guys. All of you who were in Sunday school for a year. <laughs> Editorial on David. Should I ask you what Second Chronicles is about? Editorial on Judah. Right? First Chronicles is all about David, King David. I guess we're going to have to do a lot of review after the 18th. <laughs> And when we come to chapter 16, you'll recall from what was just read that the ark is now being returned to the city of Jerusalem. And it's being placed in a very respectful place, in a respectful tent. And the reason for this is that for 20 years under the reign of uh, David's predecessor, King Saul, the ark was completely forgotten. The ark was ignored. That's right. The ark that led the nation to great success, to great victories. The ark in which the Shekinah glory of God would routinely rest and God would manifest himself through that ark of the covenant. It was abandoned. It had been in the house of Abinadad sitting on a hill guarded by his two sons for 20 years. Uh, that's after, of course, it was captured by the Philistines. And the Philistines took the Ark of the Covenant and in a mockery of God, put it at the feet of their idol Dagon, their false god Dagon. And the idol topples over once and they pick it back up and then it topples and crushes, cracks into pieces a second time. And they say, you know what? I think we should move the Ark of the Covenant out of here. And so they send it to one of their major cities. And the people are like, oh, look what we have. We have the Ark of the Covenant. They were so happy and proud. Until, of course, God struck them with a pandemic of bleeding. And you might find it interesting that the Hebrew word there suggests a hemorrhoidal bleeding. And before you know it, everybody's burning and itching and bleeding. And they say, oh, we should get rid of this thing, I think. And they send it to the next city. And they say, oh, look what we have. We have the Ark of the Covenant. Until the bleeding begins there too. And it moves on to the next city. And again, it happens several times. 
And so finally that last city wises up and says, you know what? Maybe we should just send it back to Israel. And so they put it on a cart and the oxen carries it across the border and King Saul takes hold of it and puts it in Abinadad's house and there it sits for 20 years, ignored. And now is a great day of celebration as it heads back to Jerusalem. So the nation is celebrating. And as a part of the celebration, David writes this psalm, this song. It begins at verse 8, and it goes all the way down to verse 36. And as we saw earlier, verse 7 tells us that David gave it to Asaph, the choir leader, and his musical brothers were going to liturgically sing this song during the celebration. Now, as you read uh, from day to day through your scriptures, you may notice that this psalm is incorporated into other psalms. You'll see this song here incorporated into Psalm 105, 106, and 96. And it is a song designed for God's people to use as a way of glorifying God. You notice in the lyrics, it's a song that just raises up the name of God properly. But it, it, it's also a means by which the people singing and the people listening are going to be edified. Their souls are going to be fed. As they come to celebrate, it's not just going to be fireworks. It's going to be nourishment for their souls as they consider who God is, what God has done. But it's also a means by which people are going to be taught about God. People who had forgotten, people who at one point not cared, people who were strangers, and now they come into the midst of the celebration and they're going to learn true and weighty, wonderful things about God. It's a song that resulted from the covenant that God made with Abraham. Notice something very particular here as we look at this song. You'll notice that only, only those who glory in God's name are allowed to glory in God. You must glory in God's name. Now we're going to take a look at only two verses this morning and poke our nose at a third verse. Some of you are very happy because you're thinking, well, that's a long song. Not quite as long as American Pie, but it's a long song. <laughs> so we're going to take a look at verses 9, 10, and briefly at 11. So let's begin with verse 9. It reads this way. Sing to him, sing praises to him, tell of all his wondrous works. Sing to him, sing praises to him, referring to God. Tell of all of God's wondrous works. And here's the beauty of worship music, my friends. The beauty of worship, worship music begins in that it evokes emotions. Worship music digs into the heart. And it begins to stir up what's already there once you know Christ as your Lord and Savior. And then it provides a way for those emotions to come out. 
emotions that reflect truth about God. I'm not just talking about sentimentality. I'm talking about emotions that are filled with truth, truth-heavy emotions that begin to seep out as you sing to God about God along with everyone else. And there's a particular beauty in knowing that I'm not alone. On occasion, I get to go to pastor's conferences and I'll join in the sanctuary with some 2,000 men and what a sound that is. All these men singing these glorious hymns. But you know something? I think we could do likewise. We're not quite 2,000 voices, but we could worship just as well as they, and we should. Raise our voices with truth-heavy emotions and worship God. Not only does it evoke emotion, but worship music also explains God. With the use of melody, with the use of rhyme, it explains God. It tells us things about God. It instructs us and reminds us. And with the use of uh, of repetition, which tends to be very persuasive, it instills truths in us about our God. Sometimes these songs put words to our feelings that we didn't know how to express before. And we say, yes, that's exactly what I was thinking. That is my God. Worship music explains God. But most importantly, worship music extols God. It doesn't only admire God. It doesn't only lift up the name of God, but it extols God by commending God to one another. Whenever we are singing, we are telling each other, do you know this God that I'm singing about? We are saying, oh, please take him. Oh, please receive him. When when we sing to God about God, we're singing to each other and we're saying, oh, I hope you know him too. It raises his name in our hearts to the heights that belong to God alone. Back in 1994, Kurt Cobain from the band Nirvana decided that he would take his own life. A desperate man, uh, some would argue he had so much to live for, he obviously disagreed. And about two years later, in 96, somebody had the idea of establishing what was supposed to be a Christian church named the Church of Kurt Cobain. Instead of singing Amazing Grace at the church of Kurt Cobain, they sing Nirvana's Smells Like Teen Spirit. This is no joke. Uh, The idea here is that they want to extol the purpose of the life of Kurt Cobain. And they want you to see that the life of Kurt Cobain emulated the teachings of Jesus Christ. Just for the record, it was quite the opposite. Quite the opposite. And if Nirvana is not your type of music, well, then you might consider then the church of John Coltrane, which seeks to do the same thing in a jazz way. And why is that absurd? Why is this ridiculous? It's ridiculous because neither Coltrane or Cobain are worthy of the praise that God is worthy of. 
It is absurd because neither one of these men lived lives that ought to be emulated. They were both train wrecks. My friends, we worship the Lord with music because God is worthy of being worshipped. And music is just one way in which he is worshipped. We worship God from day to day with every choice we make. The truth is, my friends, that we worship God most when those small choices honor him. You know, it's really not the big choices that define us. It's the small choices that lead to the big choices that define us. So here verse 9 reads, Sing to him, sing praises to him, tell of all his wondrous works. Look at verse 10. How shall we now live? Look at verse 10. Glory in his holy name, let the hearts of those who seek the Lord Rejoice. That's an interesting little phrase there. Glory in his holy name. Notice it doesn't say glory to his name, but it says glory in his name. Glory in God's name. What does that mean? Well, Clarkson makes a good point. He defines it very simply and accurately. He says, to glory in God's name means that you find your joy in God. To glory in the name of God means that you find your joy in God. Glory in his name. And the people of Israel understood this very well because they knew that they belonged to the one who created and sustained this universe. They knew that God alone was worthy of the most profound adoration. So they understood what it meant to glory in God's name. They knew that in their God alone was a spring of constant satisfaction. They knew that in their their God alone, their souls would be quenched. They would be made content in God alone. In fact, if you go back to 1 Samuel chapter 7, verse 2, you'll see that when the Ark of the Covenant was put away in Abinadad's house for 20 years, the people were actually lamenting, by and large. They were crying over it. Why? Because they knew that as long as the Ark was there, God was being ignored. Because this was a symbol of God's presence. This was a symbol of respect and honor to God. And now they saw the ark was coming to a place where it would be once again honored, that God would no longer be ignored. What I find interesting is that the same thing that these people knew as the ark of the covenant was coming back and God was once again going to be honored in their land after a 20-year hiatus. What I find interesting is that the world makes the same promise. The world makes the same promise. The world says that springs of constant satisfaction will be given to you if you follow the world's precepts. If you obey the way of man's thinking. That your most inner being is going to be contented if you do as man says. And my friends, this is the crux of the culture war. They promise the same thing the scriptures promise. The question is, who do you believe? Who will you follow? You cannot follow both. 
And I believe that this is why the world is so persuasive. They are offering to us the very thing we long for, the very thing God promises. It resonates with our appetites. It sounds so reasonable, so believable. It promises what we want most. However, keep this in mind, it does not deliver. The world does not deliver. This is promised. This contentment, this satisfaction is promised only to those who glory in God's name. Only to those who find their joy in Christ. Verse 10, the second half reads this way. Let the hearts of those who seek the Lord rejoice. Let the hearts of those who seek the Lord rejoice. Now now notice here that there is a limited scope as to who will rejoice. You see that? Those who seek the Lord. If you go a little bit backwards in the history of Israel, if you check out verse uh, chapter 13, verse 3, it says that for quite some time they did not seek God in the days of Saul. They did not seek God. If you take a look at chapter 15, verse 13, it says they sought him in the wrong way. And if you take a look at chapter 16, verse 11, there they were reminded that they are to seek God with the whole of their being, with all of my strength, and continuously, in a nonstop way. You are to seek the Lord in a nonstop way. What does that mean, nonstop, continuously? It, it means that you seek the Lord uh, as a norm of life. This is not what you do as the exception, but this is the normality of your day-to-day existence. There, there's no exception. I, I'm not going to seek the Lord when it's convenient. I'm not going to seek the Lord when it's easy. I, I'm not going to seek the Lord when it makes sense. But rather, I seek the Lord continuously with all of my being, with all of my strength. Those who seek the Lord have reason to rejoice in the glory of God. That person will rejoice. You will then discover, flowing from your heart, a spring of satisfaction. The very thing your heart longs for on a day-by-day basis. You will be contented. You will rejoice in God. William J. notes that the world loves to gratify. I think we could all agree to that, right? The world loves to gratify us. Our appetites are gratified. The world is able to stir our senses, feed our imagination. And honestly, this is good. This is good. It brings a particular pleasure in life. But what about your soul? The most inner part of you. The very essence of your personhood. What does the world do for your soul? Here's the answer. Nothing. Even laughter will leave you starving. The soul can entice your appetites, your senses, and your imagination, but it will do nothing 
for your soul and never addresses what matters most, your soul. It is in the pursuit of Jesus Christ alone that your soul, your heart, will be relieved. You can try other things. I can't stop you. I can only warn you. Some of you have. And some of you are here today because you have tried everything else the world has offered. And you came back empty. You said, oh, it was great, but it was awful. I'm still empty. And that's when you came to Christ. In Christ, you will be relieved. You will be satisfied. You will be made joyful. And the key word then here is seek. So we see in verse 10, to seek the Lord. Seeking is crucial. Uh, notice here that the verse does not say that those who, who have fully attained a knowledge of God are satisfied. Notice here that uh, the psalmist does not say that those who are far ahead of everybody else spiritually, they will be satisfied. It doesn't say that at all. Rather, it says those who seek God will rejoice. Those who seek after God, they will rejoice. And so again, William J. makes three points I want to repeat this morning. Why is seeking so crucial? These are three important points. I want you to remember them. Seeking God is crucial because, one, it is evidence of God's grace in you. If you are seeking God, it is because God is calling you. It is his grace in you. The truth is, my friends, that you would never pursue, absolutely never, ever pursue God if it were not for his calling and his enabling in you. Why? Because spiritually dead people don't look to God and we're born spiritually dead. Fallen creatures do not naturally pursue God. It is impossible. If you have a desire for God, not for the things of God, but for God himself, it is a work of God's grace in you. And that's good news. Uh, William J. writes, we can be forced to choose God, but we cannot be forced to prefer God. Here's a second reason why seeking is crucial. Seeking is crucial because seeking will always bring about success. You will find God. Seeking him will always be successful. It is certain you will find him. You know, there are many risky options to choose from in this life. But this is the only pursuit that is not risky. It is 100% guaranteed. Seek God, seek Christ, and you will find him. Relationships are not guaranteed. Obviously, the stock market is not guaranteed. People's promises are not guaranteed. In fact, you may be a wonderful employee and work as hard as you possibly can maybe harder than anyone else, and still be beaten by a rival at the office. This world gives no guarantees. 
Hope is dashed again and again and again in this world's system of values. But the pursuit of God is guaranteed to bring you success. You will find him. Here's a third and last reason. Seeking is crucial because when you find God, when you find Christ, you will be satisfied. You will be satisfied. The heart that seeks the Lord will live. Psalm 126.6 says, He who goes to and fro weeping, carrying his bag of seeds to sow, will indeed come again with a shout of joy, bringing his sheaves with him. Matthew 5.6 says, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Matthew 6.33, But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. You'll notice that in the scriptures, never does Jesus Christ say, Seek me in vain. No, he says, follow me, seek me, and you will find. All that your soul yearns for will be treasured up in Christ alone. You will not lack a good thing. You'll notice that the success that the world offers is always empty. Look, we all have goals in life. We all have aspirations, or at least I hope you do. But have you noticed as the years go by that there are certain dreams, certain goals that you did not attain? And you look back and sometimes you're like, man, I can't believe that never happened. You're annoyed, you're troubled, maybe even resentful. You're left empty. And then there are those goals you have achieved. Those, those dreams that did come to fruition. And at the moment you're ecstatic, you're happy. This is exactly what I wanted. Only to discover that at the next moment you're what? Empty. You're still empty. It's still hollow. That's the way this world functions. That's how people around us live from day to day in a persistent hollowness. But brothers and sisters, you do not have to live that way. You could live in the joy of the glory of God with contentment flowing from your heart. And whenever you start getting dry, all you have to do is run back there and drink a little more. Drink a little more. Take from his fountain. All earthly things do fall short I think it's foolish for us to expect that the world would do what only God can do for us, my friends. God blesses us with spiritual blessings. And the reason he blesses us with spiritual blessings is because these material temporal blessings do not satisfy. So he gives to us what will last, what will endure, pursue those things by pursuing Christ. 1 Corinthians 2.9 reads this way. Eye has not seen, 
ear has not heard, neither has the heart of man imagined what God has prepared for those who love him. Do you believe that? Brothers, sisters, take that to heart. Eye has not seen, ear has not heard, neither has the heart of man imagined what God has prepared for those who love him. Jesus Christ is not far from you. And he invites you to seek him. Seek the Lord while he can still be found. And that, my friends, is why God's word alone will allow a person, a people group, or a nation to flourish. Outside of God's word, it will not happen. Let me pray. Our Lord and our God, we thank you. For you are the source of grace, the source of life, the source of contentment. Only you can satisfy. Remind us again and again, Lord, and move us to pursue, pursue you with heart, soul, mind, and strength with each day that you give us. Amen.